Hi, and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 102, and today I have Dr. Arciero. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful, Laurent. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, actually, I met, that was very formal. I just said Dr. Arciero, but it's cool. <laughs> Paul, yes. Yeah. So maybe, well, maybe, yeah. We'll see. We'll see how this podcast goes. Hopefully, it's not. We're not going to be too formal about stuff. But um, reason why I wanted to have a chat with you. Well, there's multiple reasons. I mean, we're co-authors, so as you reminded me on a on a ISSM position stand. Um, but um, you have done some work in an area that um, I'm particularly interested in for a number of reasons that we'll we'll, we'll elaborate on as we uh, get into this podcast. But today. Um, this podcast will be dedicated to the concept of protein pacing, which you're um, highly responsible for. So, but before we, we get into all of that, maybe you could just give us a quick overview as to as to who you are and what you get yeah. up. To. So, well, my my career started uh, quite a, quite a while ago, 30, 30 years ago. I um, had a personal interest, and it was very self uh, motivated. Uh, to enhance my physical performance. So I just, you know, I ventured into this field with kind of an egotistical approach that, hey, what can I do to help maximize my physical performance? At the time, I was a competitive tennis player. And so I started taking a couple of classes in university. Um, and I said, hey, this stuff is pretty cool. And it definitely has an impact on how I'm doing. So um, that's how it started off. But what ended up happening is in the transition from um, competing at a, at a high level as an athlete into university, I realized that um, other people were actually perhaps more fascinated by what I could help them with. You know, what was it? Not, not you know, less about me and my performance, but hey, you know, what are you doing that could help me? Um, and that really opened up my eyes. It was for sure an epiphany in my transition from a very self-centered, egotistical approach to the field of sport nutrition and exercise science to one that I could apply to other people and help them um, across the age spectrum, across the performance and health spectrum. So um, it was, you know, thank God it happened. Um, and, and so one thing led to another. I, I did a master's degree after my undergrad in uh, physiology. I went on for a second master's in nutritional science um, a doctorate in exercise phys, and then my postdoctoral training was um, at Washington University School of Medicine, which with at the time the pioneer in uh, applied physiology and nutrition with John Halsey. Um, so that was just uh, an incredible experience. Um, all of it was, you know, throughout. But um, you know, it was back in 1994, actually, when I was doing that work um, at Washington University, that I kind of fell on protein pacing. So I know I kind of went through that all very quickly, but um, that's, you know, actually where my first introduction, without knowing it, uh, occurred with protein pacing. So it's, it's kind of a cool Great. Story. Well, I mean, it, it, Paul, it sounds like you've been a glutton for punishment. In <laughs> You uh, have too. Yeah. Well, well, mine. Yeah, mine was a bumpy ride. I can tell you, but uh, but I've been. But latterly, I've been getting there. Um. So the, the the fact that you were a professional tennis player, I I as we briefly discussed offline, I think that's particularly interesting. I, I I've had quite a few of the um, wonderful guests, and all the guests have been brilliant in many different ways, but. Um, it is always interesting to speak to someone who has ultimately become, you know, a researcher, a, a scientist, 
um, in the sport and exercise sciences, but who has actually been a professional athlete themselves. Do you feel um, that that has helped you in your path as a scientist, you know, giving you a special lens um, of appreciation of where, of where this knowledge is actually going to end up ultimately? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, and I'm sure we all have our own unique story. And, and for me, it was at a very relatively young age that I embarked on, on that um, career as a tennis player. And boy, I mean, it's like five tough. years old, isn't it? They can start yeah. five. <laughs> you, you start young, yeah. um, but you know, you're. I was anyway relatively clueless as to the role that nutrition um, could play in my performance. And you know, it, again, it was one of those experiences where I had, uh, I was, I had been struggling at the time. I was traveling with um, a, a, a brother and then a friend from UK, actually. Um, and I was the one who was struggling the most. And I was the one who probably had the least awareness of what I was putting into my body. So, you know, your question is a great one because, you know, does, does that experience of having competed um, help translate into me being able to relate to now other people? And for sure it did because I was on the other extreme there. I was the one who was clueless about the role that nutrition played. And it wasn't until I hit some really rocky points in my um, playing career that uh, I realized just how potent uh, fueling the right way can be with your performance. Because, right, we, we all know, Ron, Ron, I mean, you know, we talk about how, um, you know, the training and uh, the competing and even in some cases, the mental mindset that elite athletes have are, are very fine. You know, that there's not a lot of difference in some cases. And what ends up tipping the scales is, as you, I think, would agree, and others, um, how well we're nourishing and how we're doing it comes down to, um, you know, a real science and a real art at the same time. So, Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason why I was mentioning about your, your being able to be a scientist but share the lens of an athlete is, is relevant because what a lot of people don't realize is the amount of things that an athlete actually has to deal with in their day-to-day -day training. I mean, it's enormous amount of stuff that they have to get on with and routine, you know, I mean, the word routine is an interesting thing, particularly in traveling athletes where they're dealing with different time zones. Um, but, you know, especially with tennis, practice, 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 high levels of coaching, as you well know. Um, you know, nutrition obviously is important in terms of day-to-day -day health. It's obviously important for fueling, but it also can be a real menace if you're overcomplicating your athlete's life. Hmm. Um, and, I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who, who is a fairly inexperienced sports nutritionist, very well-educated. Um, but they tried out this protocol on competition day with an athlete and it went horribly wrong, not because the science, the science was fantastic. It just happened to be that in that individual, it wasn't going to work for reasons that I won't bore listeners with right now. But, you know, just basic stuff like you've got to try stuff at other times. And, you know, um, it, it, it has become, it is such an exciting field, sports nutrition. I mean, I, mm. I, I get so excited when I think this is the hundred and, second episode and i i mean we barely scratched the surface in the myriad of topics i could get into with people 
Um, but the the fluid nature of this science, but but also you know the need sometimes just to to, just to have a grasp of some realities, which is mm. why I feel whilst there is an enormous amount of science out there, not all of it's particularly relevant to the applied field. So. So just because it's been published, I, I've had a number of conversations with previous guests about this just because it's one of my research interests is how we use knowledge and apply it in practice. And so for you, bringing this back to this whole protein pacing um, topic, I, I think what we want to do is, is just get into a few things. For, for example, um, we need to define a few things like what do we even, you know, what do you mean by protein pacing? There are, from the papers that I've read on this, there's, multiple contexts in which this has potential benefit um, to the regular um, person in terms of its impact on health and body composition, um, but also all the way up to performance. But also, as I remind listeners, that athletes are human beings also with regular day-to-day -day issues. So some of the, the more normal, basic person approaches and benefits may also be a benefit to the athletes, but from a slightly different perspective. So um, I'll stop blabbing and perhaps you could just tell us just first, you know, let's define what protein pacing is. What does that term even mean? And then, and then we'll, we'll take it in various directions. So in a nutshell, protein pacing is the application of a nutrition strategy. Some would even, I, I've, um, believe it's also can be incorporated as a nutrition technology that uh, has a person, an individual, starting their day with a feeding within an hour of waking up generally. And uh, of course, sometimes schedules can uh, interfere with that. But generally, we want to make sure that um, the first feeding is occurring as close to possible within that first hour of waking up. And then every, as close as possible, um, every three hours approximately after that throughout the day leading up to the final feeding within two hours of going to sleep at night. So that's the patternized um, portion of the protein. That's the pacing portion. The protein portion of protein pacing is at each of those feedings, it should be a 20 to 40 gram serving of protein. Now, oftentimes people comment, oh gosh, that seems like such a high amount of protein. And, and it provides me an opportunity to say, actually, it's, it's not at all. It's the right protein at the right time. It's not a high protein if you look at it cumulatively over the day. For example, if somebody was doing 20 uh, grams at a serving, and, and the range of 20 to 40 is for, um, for example, men versus women, uh, different body sizes, different age levels, different fitness level, different health conditions, as you pointed out very astutely, Laurent, it, it, it um, expands the, um, the normal uh, paradigm of thinking that it's just for athletes um, who want performance. It's also for people who want to um, undergo healthy weight loss, for example. So it's the quality of, of the weight loss that is occurring um, that can be influenced whether or not somebody does protein pacing. So it's the pacing that we talked about within an hour in the morning, uh, within two hours going to bed at night and three hours, uh, three hours throughout the day. And then it's a 20 to 40 gram serving. We can get into um, more specifics as how you would apply that on an individual basis. It comes out to roughly um, about 0.25 grams 
per kilogram of body weight per meal. That's where that 20 to 40 gram serving comes from. And again, this is not just based on my research. I don't want to stake claim that um, all of the principles of protein pacing are mine. I take credit for coming up with the name, but um, other you know, outstanding researchers have contributed to the, the understanding and the, and the basis behind it. Um, and it's got to be high quality protein, right? There's different types of protein that we can ingest um, in terms of our sources. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. It's pretty straightforward. Um, but here's what I like to refer to it. And just if I could just share this, you know, of all the, 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 um, the multitude of, of different dietary approaches we have, right? Paleo, ketogenic, high protein, low protein, low carb, high, high carb. I mean, Pritikin, I mean, it just um, runs the entire gamut. There's one salient feature of all of those diets, and it's protein pacing. And so, I, I, again, I don't want to state claim that protein pacing is this all-inclusive, everything you need to know about eating. It's the foundational principle of nearly every diet. I mean, you work with high-level athletes, and I can say with a great deal of confidence, having worked um, with, with some myself, the, the, despite them being more carbohydrate um, burners or fat burners or carb sensitive and um, fat sensitive, the, the one constant of, among all of them is that they need protein pacing as the foundation. And so that I feel really good about and I can stand behind it. I can speak to um, athletes of all levels. I can speak to individuals of all health status and age that if you have that as your underlying principle moving forward, well, then you've got the a big part of it answered. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I mean, so, oh, there's all sorts of things that you've made me <laughs> So, I mean, you know, there is all, we start this off talking about the importance of the practical component. You know, it's all very well talking about science, but we still have to apply this in practice. Hence, we use, you know, strategies in performance nutrition. And, this term comes up from time to time as it relates to protein. Um, not so much, uh, in fact, this is the first time protein pacing has come up. You know, they'll talk about protein um, pulsing, for example, or, you know, pulsed intakes of protein in various meals, you know, and you go down the leucine threshold conversation and so on and so forth. And I've spoken many times to people like Stu Phillips and Kevin Tipton and Lee Breen and Keep mm -hmm. and, um, I love listing all those names. Uh, but <laughs> and, and when we go into those, you understand the mechanistic reasons for why having as much protein. And um, one area that I want to get into you a bit more is the practical benefits of mm -hmm. frequency, um, as, particularly as it relates to the um, you know, like the, the, the perceived hormonal benefits, for example, and uh, satiety and mm -hmm. you know, all these things that, that, that actually give it reason. It's not just an idea. There are actually practical reasons for doing this. So whether we want to come up with fancy names for these things, protein pacing is, um, you know, it's a strategy, clearly, and, and, it's, a, and it's a good one, I think. So, um, so I mentioned the protein pulsing thing. So um, maybe we could sort of link link these together somewhat in terms of, you know, why, why not just do all this in one meal? Yeah. Um, or, or why not just breakfast and dinner? You know, why, why is it paced or pulsed throughout the day? What, what is the actual relevance of that? 
Excellent. Yeah, this is this is the fun part, isn't it, of doing these podcasts? I, I know you want to. Um, so that's great. So yeah, the, the the pulsing, as as some people might refer to it, versus what we would call uh, the bolus, right? I mean, the big feeding, and and listen, that happens. Um, and so I don't want to uh, speak here to to the group and and suggest that uh, this is going to happen every time or should happen every time. I mean, life gets in the way. And we all know that uh, athletes, when they're out there competing on the pitch or they're on the court um, or on the field, I mean, let's, let's be honest, you know, rain delays, right? We, we're familiar with rain delays with, with um, the sport that I'm familiar with, tennis. Mm. Um, man, talk about putting a real um, damper on, on your performance or your preparation in terms of nutrition. So uh, in an ideal world, we want a protein pace. Um, but it can't always happen. And so why we are recommending the, the protein pacing above, for example, just making sure you're getting in that quantity of protein over the course of the day, 24-hour period is often how we refer to it in scientific uh, lingo, um, and a, more of a bolus type of a meal, you know, sitting down to a big dinner at the end of a day where you've just been stretched thin. Um, there's reason and there's benefit to doing it in the pacing method. And, and here's why, Laurent, and you've touched on some of it. Um, you know, it, it helps to maintain, first and foremost, uh, the, the, the scientific uh, term protein synthesis. And, and, and that's the process that occurs in our body, in nearly every cell of our body, um, in helping promote uh, a healthy level of lean body mass. Specifically for an athlete, it's their muscle mass. So as an athlete, there's nothing more important. I don't care who you're talking about, a gymnast to a, uh, a, martial, a mixed martial artist to a, a football player, soccer, of course, um, tennis player, swimmer. They need to have the greatest power to weight ratio. So, okay, so what would that mean? Well, that would suggest that you want to allow them to you know, generate as, as, as maximal as possible the amount of, of power and force over time that they can generate. And that's driven by the lean muscle mass. And so to help feed that lean muscle mass, we know that protein synthesis has to be in operation as much as possible. If you're eating less frequently, especially in the protein pacing manner of the right protein at the right time <clears throat> and in quality protein, those protein synthesis pathways inside the cell are not maximized. And so by doing it in a protein pacing fashion, you are providing the necessary product ingredients to allow for that protein pacing to be occurring as constantly and as maximally as possible throughout the day. So <clears throat> you're right, you know, if, if we were to say that in the protein pacing model, the amount of protein that you would ideally want to get for an athlete is 120 125 grams over the course of a day, and you're not such a believer in protein pacing, and you want to have them just eat, you know, a healthy breakfast and then a dinner where they're getting that, you know, 60 grams at each of those two meals. They'll, they'll, that'll hap, that'll um, provide the same thing, and you know, the the evidence does not speak to that. Um, Stu Phillips, uh, who many of us, um, you know, uh, respect so highly, he, he's shown that uh, time and time again, that to maximize that protein synthesis machinery inside the cell, it has to be delivered in that critical uh, protein pacing method of that minimum 20 gram uh, 
threshold of protein. So in a practical sense, protein pacing will help an athlete um, throughout the day maximize protein synthesis, leading to that functional muscle mass to allow them to produce the power that they need to to be successful as an athlete. So I hope that summarized it well, but that's where really the scientific basis comes from. The reason why I'm going down this path, because for those that really want to get into the, you know, the meat of the, the mechanistic stuff is, you know, I've explored this in detail with Stu Phillips, you've mentioned, and Kev Tipton, and as I said, right. we talked about <clears throat> the whole mechanistic side of it. Um, um, there's five or six podcasts, I think. So I think we've, we've done that. But another thing that has come up in my discussions is, you know, we're talking about this science to practice thing, about what makes this practical. Um, and all too often the conversation or the, the, the lens of interpretation is a very reductionistic view of things. We don't do, we're not just trying to elicit a synthetic protein response. We're not just trying to stimulate leucine. There are many things happening inside and outside um, and these things all have to be factored in when you're coming up with a strategy that is actually going to um, do what you want, but also fit into the lifestyle of the person or, or the athlete, which is why I feel this approach is particularly useful because it, it does tick a lot of those boxes. You know, if you want to isolate one thing, you can say that approach is too basic or too simple or whatever. But like I say, there are many things particularly as we said with athletes, they've got a lot of stuff going on all day. So simply getting into the habit of, for example, protein pacing in itself helps to ensure that these things are being taken care of. Um, we all know that human beings tend to be creatures of habit. And, and if I'm not wrong, you know, the, the benefits from this aren't really based on getting, um, for example, your protein intake right once, you know, that, that one-time stimulation of, you know, protein synthesis, leucine threshold that happened on Tuesday at 4 p.m. and you got that bit right. No, it's about getting it right more often than not, is it not? It's the chronic side of this and the integration of all the other stuff that's going on um, that we're going to get into in a minute. Um, I mean, is that is that fair, what I've said? Yeah, absolutely. And... Um you, you have firsthand experience in this. Yeah, it, it absolutely is that, uh, you know, making this more of a seamless uh, routine, and, and that's the key thing, right? You want these athletes um, living out in the wild, doing what they do on a daily basis um, that's, that's multifaceted uh, with all the, the, the different things that they have going on, all the different um, uh, responsibilities that they have to do. And we see this, right? We see this um, firsthand oftentimes when we watch, um, even when you're catching it uh, from the outside on TV, you see the athletes, how they show up for various news uh, conferences and um, team meetings. And, and now we know uh, the importance of the protein pacing and the critical role it plays in the normal routine of business within an athlete's life of how uh, they are provided this feeding and again, it's not the only thing. We're just saying that as the foundational nutrient, that vital foundational nutrient that they need to have it, have coming into their body um, uh, in a paced fashion throughout the day is, is the protein. And, and they're um, 
the ones that are successful are doing it really well. But yeah, it has to be something that becomes seamless, even to the point of being thoughtless for them, that they don't have to think about it. It just, it's, it's part of their routine that when they get done with that um, two and a half, three hour training bout, um, you know, that's that, that high quality protein source is available and there for them. And, and that brings us, and maybe we'll talk about this, different strategies that are employed to make it less uh, uh, cumbersome and make it more seamless and thoughtless for them. Um, and that's why supplementation, of course, whole food is always the beginning point to protein pacing. Um, but who lives in that world of luxury of having, you know, their own chef to, you know, be preparing these meals for us um, well, every three uh, hours throughout the day. Doesn't, doesn't everyone have a chef? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, how great would that be? So, yeah, you know, we, I, people often ask me that. It's probably one of the most common questions I get. You know, what do you think about supplementation? And, and for an athlete, you know, I, to be honest with you, Laurent, I think it's a no-brainer. I think, you know, there has to be some level of supplementation to facilitate and augment um, this, this uh, feeding strategy. Well, you've actually looked at, I, in your various papers that I've read, because now you've brought this up, we might as well just quickly get into it, is the difference, um, as I understand it, um, not just from your papers, uh, but also obviously from my own experiences, is not so much that, yeah, you can achieve it for a food-first approach. Yes, I and mean, although one could argue that whey protein is a food, but you know, that's another subject. But, right. but, but we do need to remember that for all the science, um, we also need to bear in mind personal preference, but also what is practical, because it's all very well trying to achieve something a certain way, but if, if the person or, or the athlete isn't able to do that because it's just too damn complicated or they're unable to get it or whatever, then at the end of the day, it didn't work, your strategy. So it still needs to come back to what's actually going to work. Um, but you have made it quite clear in some of your papers that um, what, you know, whey protein or, or food-based protein will both achieve an effect, but obviously the practicality issue and the cost issue, you know, yeah, um, particularly for the big athletes, um, they don't necessarily need to be eating uh, chicken or uh, or beef, you know, five six times a day. Um, there might be, you know, reasons um, not to whip out the barbecue on the football pitch, you know. Um, but uh, maybe you could just quickly elaborate on that. Then, um, obviously, um, that'll be in the in the interest of, of the listener. Yeah, that that is um, that's where it really comes to to bear on an athlete's. Uh, ability to adhere to this. And that's really what we're talking about is, <clears throat> you know, what, what's going to make this feasible? What's going to enhance their level of adherence and commitment to doing this protein pacing? Because as you point out, I mean, it can be overwhelming to think that, oh my God, you know, how am I going to eat? And this is the first thing that people say, you know, how am I going to, you know, get four to six meals of, you know, protein every, every day. Um, and so if you're thinking from just a food standpoint, it can be overwhelming. And so as you um, have obviously done your homework and your due diligence, yes, so I, 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 have, I was interested in this. It was, um, uh, you know, it rose to the, the, the top of the list of research agendas for me because there were people who were in some of the studies where we were providing supplementation with whey and they were asking, gosh, you know, I would like to do this with food. So, of course, we designed a study that directly compared um, a group that was consuming three meals, the three squares as we refer to them, with an additional two to three uh, supplemented whey protein. And there's a reason why we use whey protein primarily. 
um, versus a group that was doing it entirely on, on food um, over the course of the um, study intervention. And fortunately, both uh, had very similar results. Um, and so when we looked at the data at the end, body composition-wise, uh, physical performance-wise even, the groups uh, that were doing the f entirely food protein pacing uh, were no different from the supplemented. And that's great news, right? I mean, you know, if you, if you can provide it with uh, supplements, uh, that's how we interpret it, that, hey, supplements are equally as good as food, but who, as you point out, uh, can have those food meals uh, provided for them every single day? I, I know I can't, <laughs> as, as, as much of a foodie I am, so... Well, it's just, uh, I mean, I was saying this offline, you know, the reason why I'm interested in this stuff is because of how some people will will read and understand the science and then apply it into practice. And sometimes people are a little bit too literal about stuff. You know, there are reasons why, for example, whey protein might be used in the study because, um, you know, uh, that's what was provided for the study. It doesn't mean that it can't be food. Having said that, you know, you, 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 need to be, you need to be a little bit savvy about looking at it and go, yeah, but, you know, my football player or rugby player isn't going to eat two chicken breasts in the locker room, you know, after a game. It's just not going to happen. More importantly, they're not going to stomach it, whereas they can, to use an English term, they're going to neck their, <laughs> uh, their smoothie or, or whatever. And I find that, it, you know, it's a strategy. It's like anything else. Tools in the toolbox. Um, and that's the point about expertise is you need to learn to use your tools and understand the strengths and limitations of it, which is why we're talking about this stuff. That's great. I love how you use that word, um, you know, the tools in the toolbox. I couldn't um, think of any uh, better analogy there. And, and so you're right. But there's also one other thing I would add to that, you know, having two turkey breasts um, versus, you know, necking down a, a whey protein shake, there might even be some added advantage to the whey protein. And so, um, you know, we hear so much about that and some people are not tolerant to the whey, but it, it is, um, at least at this point in time, um, in our study of nutrition, whey protein, because of the leucine trigger that it provides to protein synthesis, which you've already talked about on other podcasts, we won't go into that, is um, right now, you know, top shelf. And so, but, but it's also absorbed really quickly um, it's got all the essential amino acids. I mean, it is, you know, a maximally stimulating uh, feeding of protein pacing. So, yeah, we can't discount uh, that as being, um, you know, we, you can call it a food or not. Um, but in terms of the quality of what uh, an athlete has an opportunity to fuel their muscles with, um, it's, it's top shelf. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, I think that's important. So that, that combination is, is for most people the way to go. And of course, there are, you know, protein bars that are made with whey protein. And again, if you're going to, if the listeners out there are trying to decide which if they are going to supplement, what would be the best strategy? Uh, you know, I would like to go on record to say that um, at least currently right now with the body of scientific literature that we have um, and the practical um, application and feasibility, whey protein is, is at the top. Um, both in powder form and in, um, you know, bar form, if you can get it that way. And that 20 to 40 gram serving is the, uh, the sweet spot for it. So, yeah, that's, that's really important. Sometimes, um, that's, uh, yeah, you mentioned the sweet spot. So, of course, people need to obviously be careful what they're consuming because when we see the term protein bar, if you read the label, you know, 
you often actually find you've got more sugar or carbohydrates. Now, <laughs> protein, I always find that, you know, that's why as practitioners, we have to be damn careful what we tell our clients. Because they say, right, I want you to eat a protein bar. Protein's good for you. Protein's going to be the holy grail of your weight loss. And actually, they're consuming twice as much sugar because they didn't choose carefully which protein bar. So that's why, I mean, I went for a long time just trying to stay away from any brands because, uh, you know, I had gotten involved with brands in the past. And I, I didn't want to do it because I wanted to be completely clear. But, you know, privately, uh, I stay away from all that now publicly, but privately with my own clients, I will, I will tell them about which brands I recommend because I've done my research on which ones are going to be quality protein, which are low in sugar and so forth. And it, again, it's that lost in translation thing where, you know, if we're telling everyone, right, protein pacing is going to be a healthy, effective way of achieving body composition for health or performance, we just need to be sure what we're talking about when we mean protein. Big time. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, what we call protein bars, and you take a look at it, or, we, or what we call a protein source. I know chocolate milk has had its day in the sun, um, in the limelight. And when you really get down to it, that's another good example. I mean, you know, there's eight grams per cup, but it's uh, double the amount in carbohydrate. I'm not discounting the role that milk plays. Of course, it's, it's mm -hmm. a nourishing. But if you want to meet, if you want to meet that protein threshold, uh, and, and leucine trigger to maximize protein synthesis as an athlete, there are some better options than chocolate milk. Um, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but that's the truth and the reality. Now, if you wanted to put a scoop of whey protein in that chocolate milk, that's a different story. Um, but that's, that's a really important point. So again, it comes down to the right protein at the right time and quality makes a difference. Um, and so you have to pay attention to uh, food sources that you've just... Uh, uh, pointed out that have uh, more protein or at least the necessary amount of protein to the amount of carbohydrate that's included. Now, again, we all know that the um, uh, outstanding benefits of, of carbohydrate replenishment um, for athletes after training, after competition. So we're not discounting that, but we're just saying that, listen, as the foundational feeding strategy, protein pacing has to occur and then you provide them the nutrients in the form of carbohydrates and fats and antioxidants that are necessary for that individual. And you alluded it to it at the beginning, Laurent, and I don't want to overlook it um, myself, but the individualization of how athletes respond to different feeding strategies um, is real. And I think coaches, practitioners, um, athletes themselves have to be aware of that, that um, some are just better adapted to fat Others are better adapted to carbohydrate. And so carbohydrate periodization is, is real. I mean, how, why would we ever want to, you know, put that aside with all the, um, uh, you know, high level focus on, on fat adaption for athletes right now? I, I just think it's unfortunate. Oh, but you have to Don't go down this path. I've, no, I know. Yeah, I know. I've done, I mean, I've done podcasts with Louise Burke and so on on this topic. <laughs> Again, you see, the problem is, is this, this, this thing is that people go and take this science and then they, you know, they just reduce it down to its simplest form and then just say, right, you know, here's my mantra, right, everyone's going to do this. But the thing is, is <laughs> it's like in the past podcast with Andy Galpin, we, we were supposed to talk about muscle biopsies and um, muscle plasticity. We ended up having a fairly philosophical conversation for most of it, but it was important because we, we go into this topic about differentiating 
essentially what, what makes a novice practitioner, um, you know, as compared to an expert. And, and the analogy was, um, you know, whether a bit like, you know, are you a cook or are you a baker or are you, are you a chef? Um, and the idea being is, you know, the chef is someone who will adapt with whatever's available, with whatever the circumstances they are. And they are influenced by all these recipes that they've read. But ultimately, they moved past that and they experimented and they just developed this expertise. And that's what, that's what this is. There's, there's an essential component, but it will still need adapting to the individual needs and preferences of an individual. But it's a, it's a tried and tested, basic, robust recipe, though, isn't it? Yeah, yes, excellent. For sure it is. And here's a good example. So, you know, athletes don't live in a vacuum. <laughs> I think that's really important. Um, and, you know, there's not one set recipe uh, that holds for all of them. But like you said, with the chef, you have to learn to adapt. You have to learn to, uh, you know, be nimble. Nimble is the word that I use when it comes to performance nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be nimble because here is a good example. So, you know, oftentimes people from the outside of the athletic world, uh, you and I live in it, um, but they think, oh, athletes, you know, if, if you have a, um, a marathon runner, uh, they are doing aerobic exercise and that's it. And you need to feed them according to help facilitate that aerobic performance. Um, if you have a tennis player, they're doing, um, you know, anaerobic explosive type work. I mean, that's what they do. And, and really nothing could be further from the truth. Athletes um, span the spectrum across the energy continuum, right? I mean, we, we know that soccer players, a great example. Um, you know, they, they do it perhaps uh, football as we all know here. Um, they do it better than anybody where they live in that world of sprint and aerobic exercise, but their aerobic capacity is just off the charts phenomenal. Um, athletes, for the most part, doesn't matter if they are primarily a, an, an explosive fast twitch type of an athlete, they're still doing some of their training across that energy continuum of, of endurance. Um, and they're also incorporating things like flexibility, neuromuscular training. They're doing um, obviously resistance training. So as we're talking about protein pacing and, 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 and not to even mention the fact that athletes also Um, ebb and flow with body composition, right? I mean, to think that an athlete um, trains intensely six to seven days a week, like we are led to believe with many of these fad um, exercise uh, uh, protocols that are blasted on on media, to think that athletes train to the point of exhaustion every day, that blows me away. I mean, you see this firsthand. I mean, there's nothing more silly to think that an athlete is pushing their body um, to exhaustion every single day, like we expect everybody out in the general public to do when they're following some of these 30-day or 90-day exercise programs. It's just, it's absurd. Um, so, you know, recovery is so important, but athletes, you know, put on weight in the off-season, um, sometimes even pre-seasons to counter the effects of the uh, in-season that's going to have on their on their body weight. Um, and, and some struggle with their weight. And so, but as I said at the beginning of the podcast, the one underlying feature, salient feature of every dietary intake um, method, if you want to call it that, nutritional uh, intake method, is protein pacing. Athletes maintain that throughout. That is um, a commonality. And if they are wanting to uh, burn a couple more calories in terms of helping with weight control, uh, and this goes for the general public out there as well. 
then adding a little bit more protein is actually really beneficial in the protein pacing method because of thermogenesis. You know, in the fancy scientific world, it's called postprandial thermogenesis, but I've published research and others have as well, where you can really maximize your, the number of calories your body is burning in response to a meal. And if you're protein pacing in the right way, that can be very advantageous for an athlete who needs to monitor weight control. Um, MMA fighters and boxers and other sports that are dependent on, on body weight, those athletes pay, pay close attention to it. So, um, yeah, to, answer, to, to really uh, get at that, yes, it, um, you know, there, there's ways to um, maximize the result, individualize it, uh, but then also, I think, let people know that, um, you know, athletes are not in a vacuum and, and only performing one type, nor are they pushing themselves to exhaustion. Um, and protein pacing plays a key role in those off days where they are recovering and restoring. Yeah, well, I, you've mentioned some things that I want to get into just so we can up the ante a bit with some science and stuff in a minute. But the, the, as you were saying that, I think, you know, for me as a practitioner, I'm very concerned with providing my athletes and clients with strategies they're actually going to be able to do because for the most part, I'm not sitting next to them. So, you know, if it's not something they can incorporate into their day-to-day -day lifestyle, it, it, it becomes a risk because it's not a habit. And therefore, as I said, you know, the reality is athletes have got a lot of, a lot of other things to do, um, practicing their skills and, you know, strength conditioning sports psychology nowadays and I mean there's a you know nutrition is just another thing but but everyone has to eat everyone has to sleep so there are certain habits we can get them into and and protein pacing is a is a strategy yes it's a tool in a toolbox but it's also very it's a very attractive habit and behavioral modification strategy that in itself if employed I think because I've been using this now as well. So it is that it acts as sort of a bad habit scavenger. I, I want to be the first person to coin that term. So, so <laughs> bad habit scavenger, um, BHS, there you go. So, so <laughs> as a BHS methodology, I think it, it, it has its advantages. Um, but if we reduce this, this, this down, because we've been relatively simplistic, obviously what's important because we can't, keep it simple then you know uh, we don't understand what we're talking about but th there are a number of things that you delve into in into your papers about why one would do this and you know it's inevitable we talk about protein you know especially on social media the obsession is always with hypertrophy or you know body composition but there are many benefits to protein and i explored some even with like Professor Craig Sell about the impact it can have on bone health. And I mean, there are just so many things, but as it relates to body composition, which I guess is one of the biggest areas of interest um, and recovery um, as well in, in the more active athletes, um, but health generally also being of particular importance. What, what are the, what are the, some, what are some of the things that are going on then under the hood, under the bonnet, as we say in the UK, um, metabolically, hormonally, etc. Maybe we could just explore some of those areas a bit. Excellent. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I like that term under the hood. Yeah. And, you know, we can, we can dive into this uh, as, as much or as little 
as you think we need to, but body composition wise, I think we've, we've addressed that. I think the, um, the effects that the protein pacing has on uh, facilitating and augmenting uh, protein synthesis leading to healthy changes in lean body mass is, is perhaps paramount and priority number one. Um, it, it then helps also control um, the other body composition components, specifically um, fat mass. And as you touched on, you know, we're finding now that it has some really significant impact on bone health, um, but also hormonally. Um, and I think, you know, that's an area that we, we don't have all the answers to. So I wouldn't want to uh, sit here and, and project that, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a done deal with what we know about it. But some of the things that we've uh, addressed and some of the things that we've looked at in terms of the role that protein pacing has um, on things that uh, manifest beyond the, the lean, healthy skeletal muscle mass, but also on the hormones in the brain. So one of the ones that we were interested in was uh, brain-derived neurotropic factor, one of those um, hormones that play a, a critical role in uh, neurogenesis uh, within the brain and whether or not there's uh, a relationship between um, feeding the body and properly fueling it with other favorable changes that are uh, taking place in other areas in the body. And one of those is... Um, in the brain. So it's well recognized that, you know, these growth factors uh, that are influenced with the, the right hormonal milieu uh, might influence um, things that are happening outside of the skeletal muscle mass. So there are key regulators in this neuromuscular uh, area. Other ones that we're more familiar with would be uh, insulin-like growth factor one, IGF-1. So we happen to measure um, both of those hormones. And interestingly enough, I mean, you know, you can't make definitive conclusions um, across the board with one study, but we, we did notice that there were some interesting changes. Um, we measured also growth hormone in addition to IGF-1 and, and BDNF, but we didn't see a noticeable change in the, the BDNF that was occurring. And we were uh, being a little bit more optimistic because we see, oftentimes we'll see BDNF change. Here's why, uh, which is important. I've, I've done some research where I've um, allowed older individuals to engage in what we call an exer game. So they're actually um, exercising while they're engaged in a kind of a mental task, uh, a cognitive challenge that's directly connected to the exercise. And when individuals engage in that type of, of physical movement that's tied to an actual mental task, they actually have favorable changes in BDNF. So, you know, it's, it's a neuromuscular um, hormone that's being adapted. So uh, the thought was that, hey, if we can nourish them really well by providing protein pacing and we can engage them in physical training that we know to be very um, important and instrumental, perhaps we would see a change. And, and at least with this study, we, we didn't see that um, there was a favorable change on the BDNF. Again, it might be related to other things. Uh, but we did see that IGF-1 which is, uh, um, for those that are not familiar with it, is, is a, again, a, a very important uh, hormonal factor, growth factor um, to lean body mass. And so what we showed was that in the group of men, anyway, that we had following the protein pacing, and these were fit, trained males, 
their IGF-1 level did increase. And so there is something going on with protein pacing manifesting uh, some of its uh, effects potentially uh, in, with the IGF-1 pathway. So that was, um, that was intriguing. More research needs to be done for sure. Um, but at least preliminarily, it's, uh, it's showing that um, something might be at play there contributing to it. And then as it pertains to um, the whole cardiometabolic disease risk thing, you know, it, obviously there are components to that. And I know you've observed in your work also there seems to be a positive impact because, you know, we don't want to just apply this to athletes or those looking for, <coughs> you know, um, muscle gains and so on. You know, the, the fact that we can generalize this to a very wide population is being something that's of great use and obviously obesity is a massive problem as i said you know this this sort of uh, bad habit scavenger approach um is 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 something um that's obviously relevant to this this you know this approach but um it, what's going on under the hood so what did you find there um that might be relevant to that population so one of the factors that uh from a cardiovascular standpoint that I think many of us are familiar with other than blood pressure are, is the arterial health. And what we have to measure that, there's, there's various techniques, but um, we can non-invasively uh, assess arterial stiffness. Mm. Um, and obviously for an athlete, uh, we want to minimize, actually we do for anyone for that matter, uh, minimize the, um, the rigidity uh, that the, the blood vessels experience um, throughout the course of the, the heart cycle. And so we, we've actually documented favorable changes in um, the, the arterial stiffness level um, in both trained and untrained uh, men and women following the protein pacing. So, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. It's not one of those factors that kind of jumps to the forefront of, you know, what we um, often discuss when we talk about uh, nutrition and performance, but nonetheless is, is really important and very valuable. Um, you know, athletes are placing themselves under an enormous amount of, of cardiovascular strain. And for sure, we know that people who don't take care of themselves also experience an excessive amount of, you know, of hypertension and, and poor arterial health. So, there's something going on, and, and at this point, I um, can't necessarily comment on the on the specific mechanisms. But you know whether it's uh, it's, it's related to some some factors, endothelial factors potentially, um, uh, ACE, you know, inhibition. Who who knows what? But there's there's something going on potentially with uh, the, the the healthy right amount of protein at the right time through protein pacing that's impacting cardiovascular health specifically in the form of arterial stiffness. So yeah, it's exciting data. Um, we're, we're looking to continue on um, studying uh, what might be some of the mechanistic uh, properties behind these changes, but uh, there's something at play. We've been able to now document it in both trained and untrained. So, um, I'm sort of leaving the, I, I say best to last, I think it's, it's all the best depending on who the listener is, I guess, but um, your work on um, protein pacing in caloric restriction, um, th this is an area, you know, clearly for, for 
like when I'm trying to prepare an athlete to um, alter body composition, so we're getting rid of dead weight, body fat, but without reducing muscle mass or performance, etc., is my interest. But you know, for a lot of listeners, they're they're working with members of the public who are either just trying to lose body fat or with physique athletes, for example, who aren't who aren't performance orientated, but nonetheless. This is highly relevant, um, and obviously that you know is very popular on social media. Obviously, and uh, a great deal of many listeners will be interested in this particular angle. So let, let's get into that. And I've, I've, um, I know you've co-authored a number of your papers with Mike Ormsby, who I've interviewed a number of times, um, particularly on the night, on nighttime protein feeding, for example. Um, but let's just uh, quickly um, uh, define what we mean by caloric restriction. Um, please and um, then we can go into why protein pacing is important in that as it relates to body composition can I put a little plug in there you know Mike was one of my prized uh, pupils oh um, yeah yeah so um, he and I go way way back uh, he's, he's a wonderful researcher scientist and even better person um, so I have to take a little bit of credit for now uh, yeah. so the, the, <laughs> the caloric restriction is is a uh, as we all know. I mean, talk about one of the <clears throat> hot topics right now in in nutrition and performance. And yes, I, I think you know rightly said it uh, is of interest to both um, the athletic and um, you know less athletic populations. And so we define caloric restriction by a reduction in your normal intake necessary to maintain your current uh, body habitus, your current uh, energy needs by 25 to 40%. So for some people, um, following that level of, of daily caloric restriction can be pretty um, challenging. Uh, even 25%, you know, imagine cutting your caloric intake by a quarter. Um, but it's, it's still um, fairly common. People follow caloric restriction, particularly in dynamic weight loss. And for athletes that are looking to favorably enhance their body composition, as you point out for aesthetic um, reasons, uh, and performance in that field, um, if we so call it that, then uh, 25% is, is kind of what they follow, sometimes even more extreme. Or you can then also uh, add in another dietary strategy, which is intermittent fasting. And so mm -hmm. that would be where individuals uh, would undergo a period of, of relative fast um, for anywhere between 8 to you know, 24 hours. Of, of very low caloric intake and but they they would do it less frequently obviously than the caloric restriction so that's the difference between caloric restriction 25 to 40 percent of, of normal uh, intake to maintain energy needs versus intermittent fasting which would be a one to two day of caloric deficit um, and so I've employed that in, in some of my research protocols um, both strategies actually both um, caloric restriction and intermittent fasting and they've shown some very favorable changes body composition wise um, cardiovascular um, wise but uh, for sure from a body composition standpoint it seems to be um, highly effective and you know at this point I, I it's it's hard to say I know in the position stand that you and I um, co-authored uh, one of the concluding statements was that um, you know uh, it, while intermittent fasting is, is an interesting um, nutritional strategy, people that follow caloric restriction 
um, seem to have you know equal uh, benefits to that. I think it, that that's you know going back to what we've already alluded to today. I think to have a, a, an individual, a performance aesthetic, you know, um, physique athlete or uh, a performance athlete follow one of those uh, dietary restriction patterns, you'd have to just see what works best for them. And I, at least in my personal experience of what I've uh, show, tested on people, you have to really just try it on them. You have to see which ones respond better to caloric restriction compared to those that uh, might respond better to intermittent fasting because it's, I wouldn't make a generalization that one is superior to the other. I think it's a very individualized um, nutrition strategy. But the one, again, here's another opportunity, uh, regardless of, of which one they follow, caloric restriction and intermittent fasting, protein pacing has to be at the foundation. In fact, I would go so far as to say, um, when, if they were to follow caloric restriction, so following that deficit over a longer period of time, more consistently or chronically, uh, it would be actually imperative that they increase their protein intake um, and the amount that they're eating. So if they were accustomed to doing 20 to 25, 30 grams, they should actually go up to 30 to 40 grams of protein during that caloric restrictive period. Um, and there's good science uh, to back that up. Just, um, uh, you know, I've, I've explored so many of these, these areas with so many people, but it's so nice to be able to pull this into, into a, um, a practical strategy. Um, because, you know, the, the, this is one of these things where, you know, the benefits outweigh, you know, the individual parts, don't they? I mean, there, there, are, there are just so many things here. And the one thing I just quickly wanted to touch upon was um, satiety. You know, look, we, everyone discusses protein, you know, it's great for satiety. Da, 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 da. But the, the thing, though, is, is that's all very well unless you get the hunger munchies. Um, and then you're going to get, you know, the devil in, in the head's going to take you down the wrong aisle um, because you haven't prepared in advance for this situation. So that's where I feel, for example, protein pacing, it, you know, is, a, as I said, a bad habit scavenger. Um, it, 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 the prior preparation prevents poor performance type scenario. Um, so, and I know you've looked at this, so satiety, not just from a single bolus of protein, but from this protein pacing perspective, is it, do you feel and have you found that it is a, it is a good um, strategy also when we're considering the satiation benefits of protein? Uh, yeah, so that, that, yeah, I love that um, bad habit. Uh, what was the S for? Scavenger. Scavenger. Bad habit yes. scavenger. Um, Bad habit scavenger. Pending. Um, no <laughs> Copyright. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, I, you know, th there, is, there is some evidence. You know, I, my, my, my data is not quite as robust at showing uh, favorable changes over a, a, an extended period of time, although I've documented it. Um, and I, I measure, uh, Laurent, a couple of different uh, aspects of satiety. So I measure, um, you know, how much a person can eat um, in response to following a nutrition strategy and after an acute feeding. Um, and we kind of refer to that as, uh, you know, 
just the quantity that they, they could eat. Um, how full do they feel? That would be the satiety. And then how hungry um, do they feel? And so those are kind of the three areas that we routinely in our lab measure uh, regarding satiety and fullness. And so there's no doubt that whey, whey protein, I will speak specifically of that, has demonstrated some pretty uh, powerful uh, characteristics in feelings of fullness. And I've demonstrated this in some of my other publications that I've done, especially with acute feedings of whey protein. And so that when people acutely feed with whey protein, they have um, reduced feelings of fullness. Um, their desire to eat diminishes. Uh, hunger is reduced. And the amount or quantity of food that they can, they feel that they can eat also is reduced. And so there's definitely something at play, especially on an acute feeding uh, response, or at least in an acute feeding study, I'm finding this. So for athletes that are, you know, getting those, those munchies um, and need to monitor their weight and be a little bit more on top of that in terms of overall weight control, uh, that's a very useful strategy, I, I, I can say. Um, fairly confidently that that would uh, for sure um, facilitate that. And, and what are some of the mechanisms there? Well, we all know that there's lots of different um, uh, gastrointestinal uh, hormones that are being uh, secreted um, upon food intake and even before we've eaten. And so that's what we measure, we measure things like peptide YY, uh, glucagon-like polypeptide. Um, you know, those are some of the, the classic ones that we'll measure in the lab um, and how they respond to these feedings of, of protein, you know, particularly GIP, GLP, ghrelin. Um, and so we'll monitor those. And in the research that we've done, we've shown some uh, temporary changes across a meal, following a meal, with some of these hormones, specifically PYY. And so when we can uh, measure that and the whey protein seems to have an effect there that you can actually, and that's a satiety hormone. So yeah, there's something uh, neurohormonally uh, that's happening um, after eating the protein, which could help. Great. Great. So, I, I mean, we're sort of out of time here. I'm finding this this new series of podcasts is getting a bit longer. I guess it's because I, I might have learned something uh, over the past few years. Um, so, uh, just coming back quickly to performance adaptations, you, you've got a, one of your papers that um, um, that you're involved in um, that came out in Growth Hormone and IGF Research in 2016. Um, about multimodal exercise training and protein pacing. Um, I, you know, I find this interesting, obviously, because my, I'm more of a sports nutritionist. Um, but, but quickly, if you could just quickly take us what was pertinent about your findings in that, um, 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 you know, for, as I said, a lot of our listeners are interested in performance as well. I think we need another podcast. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> no, because I, I would love to explore this um, this prize protocol mm. uh, that I've come up with. And the, and the prize is an acronym for protein pacing. That's the yeah. P. R is for resistance training. I is for high-intensity interval. S is for stretching um, training. 
mobility training, and then the E is for endurance aerobic. And so it's a multifaceted approach. And so I took this group of really highly trained men. I also had a group of highly trained women. Um, I had them undergo this uh, multifaceted uh, exercise um, intervention, which really mimics what a top tiered athlete is doing. Again, that's talking about, you know, athletes training in this uh, bubble uh, or in this vacuum. I mean, they're actually doing multifaceted um, training. And so I just took this group of uh, highly trained men and women and said, hey, what would happen if we um, had you change up your training a little bit and do this multifaceted um, training intervention of what I refer to as RISE and have one group follow protein pacing and the other one follow more traditional recommended dietary practices. And across the board in both the, the highly trained men and women, the group that was following the protein pacing and the multifaceted exercise routine had significant improvements in performance outcomes, uh, muscular power. We were using a, a a dynamic uh, ballistic measurement system that you might be familiar with. Um, great training tool, by the way, for athletes. Uh, we measured aerobic performance with a five-kilometer time trial. Uh, we measured flexibility. We measured uh, traditional strength. So across the board, I mean, in both the men and the women, and the men, it seemed that there was some role, and I uh, alluded to this earlier, with some of the um, – uh, growth factors, uh, primarily growth hormone and BDNF, primarily, um, uh, and we also measured IGF-1. And so uh, growth hormone and BDNF, as I said earlier, didn't necessarily um, look like it was contributing, but the IGF-1 did have some uh, favorable response in the prize group. And so that needs to be explored further. But um, yeah, great, great stuff. And uh, again, confirming that... Uh, if you engage in this multifaceted approach while you're undergoing protein pacing, you could have a very favorable response on performance. Which of course, you know, brings me to an obvious and uh, important conclusion here is that rather than reducing this down to, you know, the way to achieve all of these things is, you know, you just do one or the other, i.e., you know, it's the classic question of what's more important, diet or exercise. You know, my response usually is, well, what's more important, you know, the front wheel or the rear wheel? I mean, the, you know, the left leg or right leg, it depends. I guess it's a context question. If it's about which is the best one to kick the ball with, but then you try doing that without your left leg on the ground, you know. Um, but, I mean, in a nutshell then, you know, protein pacing, I guess, isn't just about pacing protein. It, it's about its integration into doing the right things as well in one's day-to-day -day lifestyle, I guess, to get maximum results. Because it's a, it's a yin-yang thing. It's not just a yin thing. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, well said. Um, th this has to be within the context of a you know, free-living human uh, that is engaging in a multifaceted, uh, fully integrated lifestyle of movement, physical training, um, and the nutrition. So, yeah, that's a great way to, uh, I think, conclude, for, for me anyway, is that, you know, this full, this full integration of the nutrition with the exercise um, is, is the, the sweet spot and the combination. Well, it's all about integration, isn't it? And that, I mean, that's, that's who we are. We're in, we're in integration of systems. We you know, live in a, in a world that is an integration of all sorts of stuff going on and we should just always bear that in mind. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think ultimately, and I say this often now, you know, we, we're, we're, 
we're learning more and more, but we're also realizing we know less and less. Yes. Crazy, isn't it? Yes. The information age is, yeah. Um, technology and it's, it's amazing. And, and so being able to, you know, take this mobily, you know, you talked about this, you know, the application of it. And so I've developed an app uh, with protein pacing and prize. And it was my way of really addressing what you've talked about. You know, how is it that an athlete with all of these other um, pressures, you know, uh, acting on them and responsibilities and, and roles that they have to um, tend to, how is it that they can seamlessly integrate protein pacing and, and, um, and within a, the context of their lifestyle? And so for me, it, it only made sense to, you know, develop the app with the algorithms from my research uh, to make this happen. And so, yeah, I'm cool. excited. Yeah, cool. Well, I mean, you know, um, we've, we, we, I think it's time we bring this to a, a close. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time, Paul. It's been awesome chatting with you. Um, I'm going to make sure everyone uh, reads the various papers. You know, the whole, these podcasts don't, they're not an instead of, you know, don't, don't just listen to the podcast. Please delve into the literature. Um, there's some great knowledge to be gained from the various papers, so I'll link to all of those. Um, if they want to find out, um, you know, more about what you get up to and follow you on Twitter and so on, what are your main sort of contact points? What, what you know, your Twitter, your website, that sort of thing. Oh, great. Yeah, so uh, Twitter is Paul Arciero, um, hashtag Paul Arciero, uh, which you pronounce so well. And then my Facebook is uh, Paul J. Arciero. And uh, I have proteinpacing.com, um, but I also have uh, Dr. Paul's protocol, which is really just the lifestyle of rise exercise and the protein pacing. But the proteinpacing.com is another one. And then the app is on iTunes. So, yeah, well, Genio Fit. Brilliant. Yeah, well, I'll link to all these. Um, lots to be gained from that. Uh, so, once again, Paul, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, Laurent, keep up the great work. So, so enjoy your podcasts. Listen to the majority of them and the role that you're playing. And I mean this sincerely. Um, you know, this is from the heart here. You know, as someone that shares this passion of wanting to uh, disseminate this research in a way that can be properly uh, interpreted and utilized uh, among athletes and, and others um, is just so um, Wonderful. So thank you for what you do. Oh, no, I, I, thank you. I, I mean, thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So listen, that's the end, folks. Um, I'm going to draw us to a close just so you can, um, if you want to catch up with all the, the past podcasts, um, um, they're on iTunes and Stitcher and so on, but just go to guruperformance.com um, where we at the Guru Performance Institute have all sorts of outputs, papers, Podcasts, um, both primary and secondary uh, uh, publications, uh, infographics, infovideos, all, all sorts of stuff on the science to practice concept in exercise physiology and performance nutrition, and of course our um, professional education programs that we run that um, aren't replacements for degrees, they just add to your degree. Um, I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and I look forward to bringing another podcast back to you all very soon.